Hi, everyone. This is Mike with episode 52 of Getting Everyone Moving, brought to you by Palms of Pines Parasports. Today, we have Jeff Welger of the Welger Foundation, and you're going to love this story. I can't wait. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. All right, so let's get right into it here. I mean, talk about how you, your family, became involved in adaptive sports. Yeah, so I was very fortunate, and at the time, unbeknownst to me, I had two incredible parents that were involved in wheelchair sports from early on. But to me, they were just mom and dad that happened to have played wheelchair sports before I was born. And it really was interesting that we had no concept of their involvement. And I say us, I have an older sister, a couple years older. Um, and until I was of the understanding age, seven, eight, nine years old, when their friends who they would play wheelchair basketball and other people in that space would tell the start telling the stories. Remember at the 1960 Paralympic Games and Saul, you did this. And it was very natural for me to hear that, but I never understood the yeah. depth of it. Yeah. And then one day I asked them to take the medals out and I had never seen the medals. They were yeah. in a, no exaggeration, in a plastic bag in the closet. <laughs> yeah. It was a part of their history they never forced upon the children. We were athletes ourselves. So the focus was on our athleticism, not on them. And all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, mom was opening these boxes and they came in little boxes and they're like more like the real metal. If you know what I mean, they're not covered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one box and another box and another box and another box. And I was like, oh yeah, this is over your span. She goes, no, this was 1960. I have a different bag for 1964. <sighs> And that's when I think at age eight, nine, it hit me. I was, and I wanted to learn more. And I, I begged them to tell me stories and explain to me when they met and where they met and, and what happened. And then it, the, the thread that's sort of coming in is the names of friends of family that I'd known since I was a child were really important names. Yeah really important names. And it didn't, I didn't know it until I was about 11 or 12 that those people were pioneers. And to me, they were my dad's best friends or the guy we see three times a year. If we head over to Chicago, my dad's friend in Chicago, who I called uncle, I didn't know his, his involvement until Mr. Nugent surfaced. And I did some research and I realized who he was. And to me, he was just uncle, you know, that's, that's who he was to me. And, and my, the families were great friends. Um, I re remember meeting Julius Kellogg for the first time and the same thing, you know, uncle Julius, that's who he was <laughs> just real simple. Yeah. So it's an incredible history that part of setting up the foundation was it impacted my sister and I so much, even though we never really addressed yeah. it. Yeah. We realized after their passing and they were no longer around to promote it or remind people or mm. convey the history. We wanted to do that. Yeah. We wanted that history to be, at least for a while longer, remember and yeah. share. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you have, do you or your sister have any plans of like writing a book about this or have you written anything or? Well, it's interesting you asked that. So we are exploring simply because of connections we have of actually I seeing if there's an opportunity to do like a docu drama <laughs> or documentary. So yeah. obviously a slight difference between the two, but to, your, to answer your question specifically, that all starts with the writing. So although we would love to do it, what we're hearing from everyone is, well, the story needs to get written. 
you know, physically written out in a screenplay or, or some, you know, manuscript of some nature. So that's what we're exploring at the moment of the avenues to both, some are avenues of the movie industry that want to tell the story. Yeah. And others are writers that want to help us write it so that the movie can be made. Yeah. So we are exploring it. Um, it would have been great had we done this a couple years sooner because of the Olympics this year Yeah. in, in Tokyo. And um, what I'm trying to remind everyone is this is only the second time the summer games are in Tokyo. And the last time my parents participated. They did. So, so that, that was 64. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So do you remember them telling you stories about that then? I mean, when they took out the medals or? I do. You know, what's funny is so in the 60 games before 64, my mom was on the German team and my dad was on the American team. And the story that's most relevant is how they met because they obviously two different countries. They happened to be in the opening ceremonies. The teams were near each other in the, in the lineup. So Germany was near us in the way the lineup works. And so they sort of engaged and my mom needed some wheelchair parts. And a friend of hers said, well, you know who's gonna have all the parts, it's the American team. So make your way over to the American team to get the parts you need for your wheelchair. And basically she kind of went over and said, you know, batted her eyes a little bit and flirted a little bit for some wheelchair parts. (laughs) And lack of a better story, you know, history was made. Um, They became friendly, they stayed in touch. and they, they, they shared communications and they wrote to each other. Mom stays and goes to Germany. You know, dad goes back to America. But my dad was an airline. Uh, he worked for the airlines. So he had the ability to travel a little more freely than the average person. So he would go to Berlin and visit her a couple times a year, believe it or not. And then they made the decision in 1962, they were going to get married. And then when they moved, mom moved to the States for Tokyo, she was actually able to compete for the American team. Because what's so interesting back then is it went simply by where you lived. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily your passport or your, your nationality or your, your citizenship. Yeah. Um, so now it's a little different. You know, you compete for your citizenship country. Um, my mom would still be competing for Germany because she remained a German citizen. She ne- she is a was a resident alien of America. She opted to always remain, keep her German citizenship. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, and then Tokyo came about and they decided post-Tokyo, um, they considered preparing for 68, um, but children came along. Right. So mom kind of retired on that level. Dad remained at the more New York or local level, national level with basketball, uh, which was conducive to both his schedule, family, and be able to, to still be a part of it. But sort of the Paralympic level was sort of done at that point in 64. Yeah. So you grew up, you and your sister grew up with, I mean, two parents who used wheelchairs for mobility. I mean, those were the old, heavy, clunky um, chairs. Ever- that. Everston Jennings. Yeah, the ENJ, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but do, do you... Do you remember them, I mean, not being able to, to do things or, I mean, they were, they were just your parents, right? I mean, you know what, it, Mike, it's a great question. And it's funny you say it. Someone recently, a friend of mine who learned about the foundation yeah. and is, a, um, a, a, is someone who's deaf. Yeah. And we've been friends for many years. He learned about the foundation very recently within the past few weeks. Yeah. And he was angry with me for not sharing that I came from the background I did, meaning having disabled parents, using his word. Yeah. 
and he was sort of angry and say, why didn't you ever tell me we would have, we, we would have understood each other better or whatever. And I said to him, I go, well, one, what makes you think I don't understand you with or without the disability, number one. Yeah. But it made me really think to answer your question specifically, they were just my parents. It yeah. was no, we never, they were never defined, nor would they allow us to define them by the disability. And I use the word disability. I noticed a lot of different words to describe it. That was their word. That was yeah. the word that they used. Yeah. They were just mom and dad. And my mom, other than having limitations, you know, mom was more the caregiver, driving us to yeah. school, those kind of things. Nothing stopped her. I mean, yes, she walked a little slower. It took an extra couple minutes at the grocery store. Yeah. But other than that, it was never a topic that they were different. It's just that's how mom and dad were. No different than I had friends whose parents didn't speak English. That's how they were. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, when, when your friends came over to the house, though, I mean, how, I wonder how they reacted, you know, to your parents and what you would say, I mean, to them, to your friends. Yeah, you know, the most of the reactions we got, maybe after initially saying, oh, I didn't realize your parents, you know, had disabilities or, yeah. they, or the word handicap, um, they were amazed. And part of that, I, I wouldn't say struggled with, but I definitely evaluated that over the years as I got older and I understood it better. Yeah. Was that... Why was their amazement? Because they would often say, your parents are amazing. I, what they've accomplished and what they do. But it, at some points, there was, there was a tinge of that question for me. Yeah. So you're saying they're different and you're amazed because they have a disability and they could achieve this much. They could achieve that much, whether with or without a disability. Yeah. But I opted very honestly to always stay in the good place, so to speak. I took it as a compliment. My parents were, were definitely acknowledged by the friends that came in the house going, wow. Yeah. And early on in my, when I was younger, believe it or not, my dad maintained, it was funny, he never presented or, or had out the medals from the Olympics. He had a lot of his trophies from, from the national basketball era of his, of his career. Yeah. And the trophies would be out. So they were more amazed by those. Yeah. And even wondered if my mom was an athlete. Because the thought was they saw all these trophies for him and they're like, oh, so your, your mom supported basketball. I go, well, yeah, but she also was an Olympic swimmer and, and some other events. And it was funny because that part of her was never public in the sense out. My dad's trophy won this fight. They were those big trophies. You know, some of them were yeah. like two feet tall and three feet tall, really big <laughs> trophies. And we did have them around the house. He did have them on display. So amazement is probably the best word um, yeah. that such accomplishments were made. But again, those friends never knew of the international element. That was a reaction from the national level. And yeah. they were in amazement. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I get that. I get that. Um, so your dad, I mean, he, so 1947, he formed wheelchair basketball. And as I was reading Rules of Courage, I mean, they would play at Madison Square Garden before yeah. what, 15,000 people. I mean, that's, that must have been incredible. They did. And, and obviously I, I was not born yet to see yeah. that, but I had the privilege of a couple of those situations in my time where um, because they had a relationship with the Harlem Globetrotters, just a friendship, a camaraderie with it in the New York City area. Um, there were times when it would be one of the two things like a game would be going on in Madison Square Garden, wheelchair basketball, and maybe the Globetrotters would do like the halftime game, the show. Yeah. And other times it was reverse. They would be having their performance, so to speak. And yeah. wheelchair basketball would be the halftime game, which my dad would participate in. Yeah. So it was really fun. But to your point, wow. It was just wow. You know, to be in Madison Square Garden watching a game and I'm on the I'm on the court side 
of the team. It was amazing. But I think back then, probably a unique situation, it wasn't as notarized because you, if you also can imagine back in the, in the 40s and 50s, not as many people would have attended things of that sort. Yeah. So I remember him speaking of it, but he never necessarily indicated it was as big of a deal until maybe the 70s and 80s when yeah. it was a little more populous that people would attend events of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And your, so your mom, I mean, she swam a number of different events, right? Mm -hmm. Tell, tell us yeah. about her and yeah. So mom was this woman who grew up during the war. She was a child, a war baby from World War II yeah. um, and always had to be resilient. She had polio at a very, very young age, very young. I wanna say, I think she was identified at like age two. So very, very young. Yeah. Um, so walked with braces and things like that. But because of the war, she was about four years old when the war was hitting. Yeah. Um, very resilient in that she lived a lifestyle none of us would ever understand. Yeah. She was separated because of the war from her family for over a year at an orphanage, thinking she was an orphan, only to realize her parents were alive and they were they were brought back together at some point in that time. Um, just that almost had this motivation of what if I'm on my own? I have to figure it out on my own. She always had that idea. I can do anything I want to do because I have to figure out for myself how to do it. No was never an answer. And I grew up with that. No was never an answer. So when they started recognizing, so she used to participate in Germany, in Berlin, in like a handicapped sports league. And they did all types of sports. It would be swimming in the winter. It might be basketball in the, in the warmer climates. They did ping pong, some uh, track and field events. They did all different types of events. And she was part of this club that would do these activities. I guess the coaches saw some talent in her and recognized like she's actually really good and yeah. good at more than one of these sports. Like she adapts, like whether it's the basketball or the swimming, she's just really good. So they started to get her profile raised by getting her in competitions and nationally and all that. And she was picked up by some of the leadership in Germany at the time to get to this national level. And part of the reason back then because of financials, you know, they were paying to send people to a different country to participate. If that's, oh that's the, you got, you had to, they couldn't afford to send a lot of people. So they chose the people that could compete in multiple sports. So the better you were in multiple sports, you were better for the team because like one person could be in three different categories. Great. We'll, we'll represent Berlin well. And if you only did the one category, there was a chance you may never be brought to the, to the trip. So mom picked that up right away. She goes, I want to learn it all. I'm going to do it all. Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. So she was the first women, woman to ever play basketball in a wheelchair. She obviously was a swimmer. That was just aptitude wise. Great. And then they got her involved in, in, in the track and field events. So shot put, javelin, club throwing, all of it. She, so she, in the, Olymp in the Paralympics, in both games, she participated in both swimming and the field events. And she won gold in both categories, both for field events and swimming. It was crazy. And even that is hard to explain to people. We don't have athletes now that do that. You know, there's a, a couple that I think do maybe yeah. do two sports. Yeah. Um, but now to think like those two sports, swimming and fields, field events, it's an odd combination. So, I mean, both your parents were really elite athletes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Very competitive, but also um, in a good way for their, their drive. They were perfectionists. If they were not going to be the number one, they didn't want to do it. So they had to be the number ones in their respective spaces. A lot of drive to always be the number one, always. What do you think um, your parents would um, 
say about, you know, what's going on now with the Paralympics, the fact that, you know, NBC is really going to be covering, you know, yeah. for the first time. I think my, my dad probably would have more to say about it. And the, probably the first words, it's about time. I think yeah. that's what he would say, honestly, like immediately. He was a no, no filter kind of guy. He was a born and raised New Yorker, yeah. Lower East Side, New York. Like yeah. it's about time because he recognized this has been around. And, you know, we do have the history that it's been around since the 40s. Why is it taken 60 years to like become mainstream? Even though there's been a lot along the way. So not to discredit anything in the 80s and 90s when yeah. you know it was out there, but why did it take so long? And the downside, which he would probably agree as well as it only became notarized to this level when it became commercial, Yeah, when they could make money off it. Right. And there definitely is, and this isn't a negative thing. It's just, if that's what it took, that's what it took. But there's a tremendous market now, brand dollars, yeah. you know, everything, even when we're working with the foundation and we're, we have connections to a couple of the, U, the U.S. Olympic team and the Canadian Olympic team, we have connections. It's a business. And that, not, that's not a negative, just going, there's a business behind it. Yeah. Product endorsements, you know, what better than I was so glad to see at the Super Bowl commercial, the Toyota commercial. Yeah. Yeah. It touched me. But for me, it was like my dad, I go, finally. Yeah. Finally, a mainstream commercial about part of the population that just doesn't get addressed. Yeah. I, I was so happy to see that commercial. You know, it was just a wonderful thing. But why did it take 60 years to get that commercial on right. in Main Street and at the Super Bowl? So, right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've asked throughout the, my podcast, I've asked a number of the college coaches and also some of the Paralympians, you know, what is it going to take to get a professional wheelchair basketball league in the U.S.? And they say, well, you know, it comes down to the money, right? And just what you were just speaking about. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, here in New York, in the New York area, and, and I've learned helping run the foundation is there's so many of the, the professional NBA teams that have side teams that are wheelchair basketball, right? You know, yeah. Dallas Mavericks and New York alone has both the Nets and the Knicks, rolling Knicks, rolling Nets. Right. When I speak with them and I, brief conversations, nothing in depth, just kind of introductory. Yeah. It's a hybrid of the two things. The able-bodied teams are doing it for the PR. Yeah. And without question, the, the wheelchair teams are doing it for notoriety and they should, they absolutely should take advantage of everything you can to get the notoriety. So I praise them for going with it, yeah. but it is a matter of money because part of it is even the financial, like you, you, you might have this impression that the Knicks are helping really fund the rolling Knicks. Yeah, sure. They're not, they're yeah. funding a little bit of it but it's still up to the Rolling Knicks to like do their own fundraising. They don't have unlimited purse strings. So they're able to get the name a little bit and get a little bit of that recognition. And yes, they'll be used at a halftime game for notoriety and give them some PR. Unfortunately, I still feel it's a little bit more for the PR for the able-bodied teams yeah. than it is for the cause. Yeah. And I wish it was more about the cause. Do it because you want to support getting this more mainstream. Yeah. getting it more accepted. That's what I love it to be. And I hope it gets there someday. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it will. Tell, tell us a bit more about the foundation. I mean, why, you know, why you and your, I guess, sister set it up. Yeah. You know, when, when my mom passed unexpectedly in 20, in late uh, 2019, and when we started going through the belongings, many of them were my dad's that had not been touched for many years. And then obviously mom's the amount of memorabilia and the impact resurfaced for us where, like I said to you, we sort of realized their impact when I was in my teens. Yeah. And now I'm in my fifties. So there was a gap in the middle where 
it, it was there and it was forgotten in a way. When they passed and going through their belongings, the, the impact resurfaced. And it made me realize that their story is truly so incredible. And again, a 50 year old perspective is very different than a 19 year old perspective. Sure. Is we, if we don't do something to keep this story alive and out there, it will disappear. Yeah. You know, and, and I very quickly said to my sister, I, I want to drive the story to be told again and more. And yes, maybe it'll last for another decade or not, but even if it's a decade longer that their story is out there and, and what they did, and even if that helps wheelchair sports story, you know, propagate further, I want to do it. That will be the legacy. And when we were, so that was sort of the concept of it. Yeah. But then we said, but they were, they were true like philanthropic people as well. Yeah. More so with their time and sort of sweat equity, yeah. they wanted yeah. to help youngsters and youngsters being a broad term, you know, young, young kids, but also through like late teens, early twenties to recognize that if you think you don't have options because you're handicapped or differently abled or whatever you do. And especially when it comes to sport and especially in team sports. Yeah. So we realized with their heritage of that's what they believed in. That was the heritage we wanted to continue because if we can get their story out to the slightly younger generation, those generations can help propagate it longer than I can yeah. after my time has passed. So it was a hybrid of the two. We want to help the young kids that would have been in the age range-ish that my parents would have been when they started. Like I said, my mom started when she was four and saw what having a club in Berlin did for her. Yeah. My dad was like 16 when he played basketball for the first time yeah. and it shaped him for the rest of his life. So if we can touch upon the four-year-old in America, the 16-year-old that might have had an accident led to a disability now later in life and say, you are far from, your life is not over. We heard that a lot. My life is over. I had an accident or something. No, it's not. You have a life in front of you. Let me show you how my parents did it. That's really what the genesis was. And that's what's starting to really form us in, you know, we're, we're a younger foundation. We're only a few years old. Yeah. Um, but that's what's driving us is really focusing on the youth and youth being anywhere where we heard there was a gap in this, in this space. When you reach the national level, although there's more support needed, you do find the support you need. Yeah, they are. When you're at the beginning level, because you're so early on, whether it's a young person or you're, there's support there. There's no, there's lack of a support in the middle. When I say the middle, I've been in, in a team sport for a few years and I can't afford the dues anymore. I would love to participate in national tournaments, but my family can't afford to travel to them or I can't afford the entrance fees. That's where we want to come in. We don't want someone who's already involved in a team sport to be hindered strictly by possibly financials or equipment that they might need to continue that journey into their later years. So our goal is to focus in that middle category. They might already be involved in sports, but might be second guessing if they can continue or they're in it, but now they're going, let's say from high school to college, and maybe I can't afford it anymore, which means I would stop participating. No, let us, let us learn about your story and see if we can help. That's the categories. That, so the middle group of not necessarily Paralympian down the road, that would be a great idea, but that middle group that is on the border. We want to make the great, wonderful, and maybe get some really great performers locally or nationally to the national level or the Paralympic level. Um, 
You know, speaking about college, there's still only a handful of collegiate, you know, wheelchair basketball programs or tennis programs. Yeah. And I, I, again, I've asked this question of some of the college coaches, you know, how do we spread this, you know, so that youth have more uh, choices? Yeah. You what know, do you think? Yeah, go ahead. I struggle with it. I'll tell you why. So we yeah. made a, a friendship with in the local area with Matt Richards. Matt Richards is in New York City. He, he was brought on a couple of years ago in CUNY. CUNY is the city universities yeah. of New York, of which there's several, many. He was brought on to run their adaptive sports programming, to bring programming to the city university. So whether it's basketball, volleyball, whatever, just whatever he can do. And, and so we're big, we want to be more of a supporter of him locally. Yeah. But what we're learning through him is it came back to what I said earlier. Where's the dollars? Yeah. Because when the donations, and again, many universities, if you're not, you don't have the foundation or you don't, you're not, you know, endowed, you're doing fundraising. It's harder to get the money for those sports, but it's very easy to get the basketball, the football, and things of that sort. What I would love to see happen is for people to value those programs of being just as important to those individuals as maybe a basketball scholarship might be to the NBA or a football scholarship to the NFL. And what I would love to see if they ever get there is help have those organizations that now all the major ones, baseball, football, basketball, they've made it. They, they have, they're a structured, well-established corporation. Yeah. Shows, show a bit more altruism to the space, to the colleagues. So you want to do, you know, I don't, there's not necessarily you know, wheelchair football, there is someone, some programs like it, but the basketball and the hockey, put money into it. Can't you donate some of your money in it and help support those organizations? Now, I do recognize there is a great relationship between the NBA and the NWBA. I get that. But to your point at the collegiate level is where it's hard. I would love them to, to get more of a space where maybe the professional organizations truly appreciate the value that they can bring to their, to their, to the other heroes that, that play the sport that are not necessarily able-bodied. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a macro question for you. Um, so how do we create more inclusion in, in society? Um, you know, I, I ask this question to everyone that I interview. Uh, what do you think? I, it, 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 that's the $64,000 question. Yeah. It absolutely is. Sure. Um, you know what? I, I'm going to take my parents' advice, and and they believed that the best way to be more open and, and expand the horizons is exposure, expose people to what is different and what is new. When I was growing up, I was a swimmer, so I kind of did follow my mother's footsteps. Um, and what was interesting is she was looking for a, and a reason. I'll tell the story for one second; it'll it'll explain. Yeah. We grew up in New York City you know, a very diverse city, but at the same time, not as diverse as people might think back in the seventies and eighties, it was still less diverse than it is now. Yeah. Um, she wanted us to be swimmers. She looked for a team locally that we could uh, outside of a school team. And she found a team through reading an article in the New York times. And it was an all African-American team, the entire team. And she went to them and said, I'd love my kids to join your team. And this was in the mid seventies. Yeah. And the coach, also African-American, he started a team, the genesis of a team had been around about 15 years, said, I'll, I'll, let's talk because I don't know if they're going to fit in. I, I, I don't know. This might be too big of a risk. You know, yeah. a, a white family on this team, I've never had one. It's yeah. always been African-American. And I'm telling you, you're going to face challenges. 
And he said that to her. So she, he agreed to say, let's do a trial a few months and if it works, we'll continue. I ended up being on that team for 17 years. The entire 17 years, the only white family on the team. But the reason I bring up the story, one, it exposed me to something my mother insisted she wanted in our lives. And I appreciate it, whether the word forced or not forced, but she forced an exposure. I was forced an exposure to wheelchair sports, right? It was, it was who we were. Yeah. I went to games with dad. My mom took me to the games. I do believe we have to present more opportunities for the exposure. So if that means getting major media to cover national or international tournaments of wheelchair sports, that's exposure. I think the past couple of Paralympics that have been on TV is a, absolutely a step in the right direction. And I praise them for doing it. I hope it continues. With it being the Paralympic Games, I hope they start following some of the others. There's national events every year. There's international games that are outside the Olympic years. Cover those, NBC. Yeah. Cover those, ESPN. Yeah. Get that on mainstream media so people start seeing this is going on. And it's not sporadic. It's not intermittent. This is going on right alongside every other major sport. Get those, those networks to cover it. Get more news articles written about it. A step in the right direction, the new US Olympic and Paralympic Museum opening up this past year. A, a, a brick and mortar that's, that's promoting and encouraging exposure to abled and disabled bodies. Wonderful, we need more of that. So are a lot of your parents' memorabilia going to the museum then? Or are you setting up something separate or? Yeah, so we, uh, with the belongings, we donated quite a bit to, um, to, to both the Olympic Museum as well as the uh, Naismith Hall, the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Mass. Oh. So my dad had already had several pieces there. We donated a few more to add to the collection and it's a rotating collection. So they're, sometimes they're on display, sometimes they're not, but it, it's a full-time uh, rotational schedule. For the Olympic Museum, it was so interesting when I, I just wrote to them, we have so much stuff that I said, would you be interested in, in looking at some of our things? Would you like some? We wanted to donate some of it. And they were flabbergasted at things that we had because they had been seeking out some of the history that they had no, they had not found. And a lot of it being Stoke Mandeville brochures, oh. Stoke Mandeville invitation letters. Cause when you were, you were invited to participate at the Stoke Mandeville games we were able to provide those to them. We were willingly, we donated them to the museum because we recognized I could keep it in a folder somewhere, but yeah. get it out there. And when I learned that she said to me that the curator, we spoke at length for many months, yeah. Jeff, I have to have this. No one has this. I wanna be able to display it. I said, you got it. Because I said, all I want is for others to realize what it was. And so we donated, there was a couple of, um, Jersey items, some gear from the teams, a lot of uh, paraphernalia, like paperwork. We did a brochure from the Tokyo Games, a multi-page brochure that we gave to them. But then we also gave them about 60 um, items that will be on the digital archive. So photos, some scan documents that are literally, their newspaper clippings that are deteriorating. So the thought was, let's get them scan real quickly. So there's about 60 items that will be part of the digital archives as well. So about 10, 12 items in the museum and about 60 on the digital archives. Wow. Yeah. And they do have, we, we donated, well, I should, we uh, loaned two medals, one from mom, one from dad. We did not give the Olympic medals. 
by family choice. We didn't want to give those up. We gave them the international games medals. So we gave them a goal for each of them that from the international games, I want to say, I forget what year might've been 50. No, it would have been later. It might've been like 61 or 62. We gave a medal that'll be on display for five to 10 years at the museum. Um, did your dad save his original wheelchair basketball chair or his, his chair? No, well, unfortunately it, it disintegrated in essence. Yeah, just, yeah. My dad was, um, uh, for those who knew my dad, some of them on, watching this might have known him. Um, I know his generation that you'd be in your 80s or early 90s. Yeah. Um, he was a tough player. Yeah. He was a rough player. Um, and the, his chairs took a beating. He would average really a chair every season or two. <laughs> so I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not, not going to say much more. My dad was a tough player. Yeah. You're talking about your rugby, right? <laughs> <laughs> Some would question. Some would question if that's what it should have been. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was a tough cookie when it came to, he played, he lived hard and played hard. Yeah. That's great. We're coming to the end of our interview, although there's a ton more to talk about, but Jeff, <laughs> what, what would you leave our listening audience with? Just, you know, a few words whatever you'd like to say. I, if nothing else, I would say there's such an incredible history in this space. Hmm. Learn the history about it. If, if we can help in that, because I'm definitely trying to my best to convey a little more of the history and how it can help the future. But there's uh, most of it is the history. But equally apply the history because I think what, what when histories get forgotten, which I've, I'm fearful of that the history will get forgotten and people won't remember how we got here. Because yeah. it, it's wonderful, but if you, to do what we're doing and the notoriety that, that adaptive sports and wheelchair sports get, it's wonderful. And I, I please keep the momentum going across the board, all ages, all categories, all of it. But if ever we forget parts of the history, we're in jeopardy of not being as successful as it can be. Yeah. Because the history still is the foundation. It is, and with if you have a crack in your foundation, eventually it goes away. Yeah. So I say, do your best to pass along the history, even if it's through story or through messaging, try and do it. When it's so interesting, when we're doing reaching out to organizations now, when I bring up my father's name, it is so flattering of how many people will say to me, I knew Saul, whatever you need, let me know. I would do anything because he was one of the first. And that's not going to last forever. And that's what I recognize. So what I want to do is educate people like yourself and colleagues and things that are younger, my age and maybe older than me, but say, let me tell you the story of Kristen Saul so you can continue it. You may not have known them, but you can continue the story. I have nieces and nephews and my goal is, and they're in their early 20s. Yeah. I want them to learn the stories more so they can help continue the message. Because we have to remember Stoke Mandeville games that can't be forgotten. You can't forget that there was no Paralympics. And honestly, the first Paralympics became the Paralympics. It was actually the Stoke Mandeville games that they just started over years. Let's call that the first Paralympics. That's what it was. Yeah. There wasn't a defined first Paralympics. It was the 1960 Stoke Mandeville games in Rome. Right. That kind of morphed into being known as the first Paralympics. But that needs to be reminded, not that it's a bad thing. It yeah. needs to be reminded. Let's not lose sight of, of Dr. Ludwig. You can't lose sight of that. Yeah. That has to be remembered. And we're right on that cusp of that generation who were aware of it 
we're moving on in years. Yeah. It could be forgotten. Don't let it be forgotten. Jeff, just tell us your website because your parents' story is there. Yep. It's welgerfoundation.com. Oh, I'm sorry, .org. Welgerfoundation.org. So obviously the bottom part of the, the logo that's about next to my head, welgerfoundation.org. It has their entire story. It shows the medal count, some fun photos. Um, and if you want to get in touch, there's contact information as well. If anyone would like to get in touch with me to whether talk further or share stories or even have information, like if you have old photos or stories, please share them. I will share one last thing if I have a minute. Yeah, Just please. recently, I'm on Facebook with several of the groups like this one. And I was on one of them and a picture got posted of a, a, a national dinner following the 1964 international, I'm sorry, national games at Bulova in New York City. I was like, great. I, that was my parents' generation. Let me look at this photo. Great photo, big banquet hall. Hundreds of people are in the photo. My parents were in the photo. I had never seen the photo. So lovely. I would have never seen that photo if it wasn't for Facebook. My point is, share it. Yeah. Put it out there. And if you have other things like that, send them to me if you don't want to put them out. And if you give me permission, I'll put them out. But that history, that photo was so moving the other day. It was a photo I'd never seen. And not only were my parents in it, about eight of their closest friends, all part of my past, were in the photo. Such a great memory, but it's continuing that story because now it's out there in the public that history will be maintained. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you giving me the time.